0: Genesis chapter 14, where we continue our, our study of Genesis, really of Abraham. Uh, Abram is the name he is going by for now. Last week, we talked a little bit about conflict, and I think that struck a chord. I think a lot of people uh, recognize that this world is full of conflict, that we, we have arguments with brothers and sisters, the minute we're born, that we have relationship issues in our marriage where we have conflict. Not only that, we get to work, and in work, we have conflict, all right? Conflict happens all the time. We, we look on grander scales, and we look at Ukraine, and we see Russia and Ukraine in conflict. And that's what we see again today, but this conflict is a little different, This conflict needs a rescuer. Uh, Lot, who chose to sit near Sodom, needs to be rescued from his own sinfulness, his own wicked choices. So let's go ahead and open in prayer as we think about conflict. Father, this world is is full of conflict. Since Adam and Eve in the garden, since the fall, there has been conflict between us and God and then us and each other. Lord, we pray that your redeeming work would go forth into all of us today, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that the the word of God would come in spirit and truth and convict our hearts of areas where we fall short, so that we would be like Jesus. That whether at home or in the throng, whether in, in church or on our way home from church, or even on our way to church, we would repent of our failures to measure up and receive the, the gift of Christ to forgive us our sins. Lord, we are so grateful for your word that speaks truth, uh, not only for us, but for all mankind. Lord, we pray that this, this, this passage would speak to us this morning, and that we would be strengthened in your word. And, and as we spend some time this evening uh, saying goodbye to the house family that we would remember the good news that this is not a permanent, eternal goodbye, but a temporary goodbye. So, Lord, comfort us and strengthen us as we move forward in our text. Be with me, Lord. Help me to be behind the cross so that you would shine forth, that it would be your words that come forth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Sabine, can you turn me down just a little bit? I feel like I'm really loud. Do you guys hear me okay? That pretty good, right there, because I might get excited, and when I get excited, I might start yelling. So the conflict is far greater than physical for Lot and Abraham. There really is a spiritual reality. So when, it, when Lot standing before the plane and he makes his choice, he chooses what's best for him, right? There's a selfishness in his choice. Of the land, and he he says, you know what? This land looks like the ideal location. You know, in that culture, when Abraham said, "Hey, you choose," the proper response for Lot would have been to say, "No, no, 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 you choose," right? And he would have handed it back over to the elder as a respect to the older person. So Lot, the nephew, decided to forego that in order to enrich himself with the promised land. And so our passage this morning we see how God gives Abraham victory over military enemies that were plundering the promised land. Which, for the original readers, they would recognize that God gives Israel, his chosen people, the promised land. This would be an encouragement to the first readers of this text. So Moses is writing down the history of the Israelite people while they're in the wilderness. And as he's writing it down, he records this story. And I don't think for a minute that he forgot who he was writing to. They were about to enter into the land. If you read the book of Deuteronomy and Joshua, you recognize that there's a theme that flows throughout it. Fear not, because they're about to face some really tough enemies. They are going to war against the superior force. And so as he's writing that, he's trying to remind them who their God is. So the enemies that Abraham is about to face is a precursor to the enemies that the Israelites face. But what do we, as New Testament Christians, have to do with this? right? Why does this matter to you and me tomorrow when we go to work or when we go to school? Well, for New Covenant Christians, for those of us who are called by the name of Christ, we have an encouragement in this. First, I want you to do something when you get some spare time. Take the book of Ephesians and take the book of Joshua and compare the two of them. You will notice that the book of Ephesians follows the same themes that Joshua does. So Joshua is all about physical warfare with a spiritual reality. Ephesians is all about spiritual warfare with a physical reality. If you ever come and do marriage counseling with me, you will go through the book of Ephesians from chapter 1 onward because you can't get to Ephesians 5 and 6, the marriage section and the the spiritual warfare section, without dealing with chapter 1 about who God calls as his people. So we have this discussion in Ephesians about spiritual warfare. I want to read it to you. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12 says, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you may stand against the enemies. Excuse me. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the scheme of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. In the Old Testament battles that people of God experienced, they were both physical and spiritual. David and Goliath was much more than a physical battle of the two best champions. There was a spiritual conflict at hand. Who is their God? Whose God will prevail? And that same theme is here today. So our battles today tend to be more spiritual than physical. Blindness, anger, wrath, malice, all these stem from a, a spiritual Background so according to Ephesians Christ is the military conqueror who leads the captives to freedom According to Ephesians 4 8 it says for it was when he ascended on high He took the captives captive. He gave gifts. he gave gifts to his people So as Easter approaches, I want you to think about Christ as the mighty conqueror who rescues the people from themselves from the wrath of God, because everyone without Christ is under the wrath of God. And so our passage this morning, even though it is a it's a physical battle between kings. We have to recognize there's always a spiritual reality underneath it. So this is not about spiritual warfare, but it's not not about it. Does that make sense? Let me see if, if you don't understand. Go like this. I won't judge you. Right. It's Not about spiritual warfare. This is not explicitly about spiritual warfare, but it is implicitly about spiritual warfare. Who is the king of Abraham who gives the victory? And so we have first the plundering of the promised land. The promised land is plundered. Look at verse 1 of chapter 14 in our passage this morning. The eastern kings are invading. Now we have these two kings. I'm not going to go into detail. I could geek out about this whole battle because I like to do that. That's what I like to do. But we're not going to do that. I'm restraining myself from boring you with battle plans. But the Iranians and the Iraqis have gotten together to invade, the Can- to invade Canaan, right? And so they have gotten together, these two kings, and they are going to invade Canaan because for 14 years... The Canaanites, the kings, the city-states, the city-states in Canaan were paying tribute. So they were paying tribute to the Iraqis and the Iranians. So let's go ahead and look. It says, In those days, King Amraphel of Shinar, King Ariok of Elisar, King Ched-or-Lamor of Elam, and King Tidal of Goyim, waged war against King Bera of Sodom, you've heard that name before, King Bersha of Gomorrah, you've heard that place before, King Shinab of Adama, and King Shember of Zeboim, as well as the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All of these came as allies to the Sidium Valley, that is, the Dead Sea. So, remember, at this time, the Dead Sea area looked really nice. I had the opportunity to go and float in the Dead Sea, and it was not so nice. It, do not get that water in your mouth. I'm just going to warn you now, it is disgusting. It's full of salt. So, something happened to the land to cause it to not be like the Garden of Eden that we saw a Lot was talking about last week. So this land is, is devastated now, but back then it looked good. It was, it was appealing. Verse 4 says, They were subject to Chedorlaomer for 12 years, but in the 13th year they rebelled. So they stopped sending their tribute to these kings. So, in the 14th year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with them came and defeated Rephraim in Ashtaroth, Karnim, the Zuzim in Ham, and Amim in shavakirath Am. I want to warn you, if you are in the home groups, Ryan is going to make you read those names. So just be ready next week when you go to the home groups. So practice. And the Horites in the mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran by the wilderness... Then they came back to invade in Mishpat, that is, Kadesh, and they defeated the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who lived in Hazaz, Zonatamar. All right, so we have these eastern kings invading, and we have the summary of these kings. These four kings get together. The two primary ones are from Iraq and Iran, and they have moved into the land in order to get their tribute. Right? They've been paid tribute for a certain amount of time, and they stopped, so now they had to get an army together to invade. And this is the promised land that Abraham is living in. Now we have the eastern kings defeat the Jordanian kings, the kings that are in Canaan, the king that are in Jordan. And that's what we see in this next passage here, 8 through 12. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and lined up for battle in the Siddim Valley. All right, so think about this. You have the five kings against the four kings. The kings have um, come out against each other, and they have lined up. Verse 9 says, Against King Lamar of Elam, King Tidal of Goyim, King Amraphel of Shinar, and King Eroch. Of are four kings against five now verse 10 says now the Siddam Valley contained many asphalt pits and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled some fell into them but the rest fled to the mountains the four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on they also took Abrams nephew lot and his possessions for he was living where was he living In Sodom, not next to it anymore. He didn't just pitch his tent next to the wicked city of Sodom. He has moved in. He has gotten comfortable. He is in Sodom. And they went on. So, I want you to think about this. Lot is living in Sodom. He wasn't tenting anymore. So, not only that, he is in the wicked city. And these kings have come in and they have defeated this coalition of city-states. So that's the, that's the, the background. That's the, the basis for what happens next. There's a, a spiritual reality behind this. The land is desolated and there's really no more hope. Think about the hopelessness of the situation. Think about Lot for a minute. Have you ever been taken captive by enemy forces? Think about how well-treated Lot would be. Not so well-treated. So he chose what looked like a good option for him. He said, this land is nice. This is a a beautiful area. I'm going to settle here, which then led to his capture. And now this is a hopeless situation because he really did insult Abraham, didn't he, by choosing the better land. So Abraham has the not so good land. He has to choose where to live, whereas Lot has the best land, but now he's captive. Who is going to come to Lot's rescue? The situation really looks hopeless, doesn't it? Pretty hopeless. These kings can't fight these armies of the east. They can't get the land back. The locals are captured and plundered. Any prosperity they might have gained is desolated. There is no more hope. You know, I think we see this today, a sense of hopelessness in our culture today. Uh, One area is broken marriages. Hurt people... And hurting people hurt people hurt people they say right and what is the cause of broken marriages what's well, sin sin in the world is devastating and it bleeds into our physical society I had some I had Ryan do me a favor and pull up some st- statistics for me because I am not great with the statistics side of things so according to the Journal of Marriage and Family divorce is a driver of of cumulative inequality, now that's a fancy word, just bear with me, between education groups during the life course. Divorce is the main factor in determining the length of poverty spells. Divorce is the main factor in how long someone stays in poverty. Divorce has powerfully negative effects on children. A Canadian study shows that 61% of children's households become per capita, lower income households if the two parents separate compared to the 13.1% of children's households when the two parents stay married. 61 versus 13%. Do you want to solve the problem? Fix these marriages. Because that's what's causing it. It says that about 50% of those who get divorced wind up in poverty. Now, this is not to chastise those of you who have been through a divorce. I, I get the complicating factors. But just recognize that a, a physical issue has, or really it's a spiritual issue, has physical realities. Divorce in our, in our marriages um, damages society. So if we are to encourage and strengthen marriages, we would then help fix a big portion of society. Do you see the, the connection there? But it seems hopeless, doesn't it? The divorce rates are skyrocketing more and more. I don't know if there's anybody in this room that doesn't know someone who is divorced, been divorced, has a divorce, whose, children's, uh, whose children, whose parents are divorced. We, we see this in our society today. This shows us how to reduce poverty, help people stay married. You want to reduce poverty, help people stay married. If you have been married, you know that it can be a spiritual battle. Why am I my Why is my wife and I fighting over the toothpaste, right? Obviously, the toothpaste is not the physical issue. There's a spiritual reality behind it, right? Someone's feelings were hurt uh, 20 years ago, and now we're going to hold it against each other, right? What causes conflict and wars amongst you? Says uh, James. Well, it's your passions are at war with one another. There is a spiritual battle going on in marriage it's no accident that in ephesians you have this instructions on marriage and then ephesians 6 follows along with spiritual warfare right pray continually so one responsibility for our church is to care for and fight for marriages to encourage marriages you want to help affect the community pray without ceasing for the marriages around you because it seems hopeless. You know, Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage is supposed to be a relationship between Christ and the church. Your marriage is a reflection of Christ and the church. When you sin against that reflection, you are demeaning the name of Christ. When you can't settle your conflicts in your marriage, you're demeaning the name of Christ to those around you. This is a harsh truth, guys. I know it's hard. Um, I have to remind myself, I look in the mirror not more more times than anything and say, why did I get grumpy with my wife? A bad reflection of what marriage looks like. When you have an argument with your spouse, you are engaged in a spiritual battle. The question you need to ask is, who is the enemy? Now, some of us in the room would say, oh, that's my wife. She's the problem. My wife is the problem. no. You're the problem, right? And that's what you will get if you ever come to counseling with me. I will tell you, you are the problem in your marriage, right? You did it. You caused it because it takes two to have an argument. So it's a spiritual battle. So who are we fighting? Well, we're fighting Satan because Satan would rather break apart marriages than see them thrive. If he can destroy marriages, he will be thrilled because marriage is a reflection of Christ in the church. Your spouse is not the enemy. You have to fight the problem, not your spouse. Marriage is a battleground. Have you ever thought about that? Your marriage is a battleground. Because we are fighting against the powers and principalities, the darkness of this world. It's against the devil, the world, and yes, even yourself. It's your own selfishness that leads to conflicts in your marriage. Your own selfishness sinful heart so remember the next time you are in a conflict something bigger is at stake there's something bigger going on there's a spiritual reality to this let me ask you a question how many of you get snippy with your wife or your husband before church every time it's almost always an argument in the car like we're going to go worship jesus no it's like why did you squeeze the toothpaste from the middle this morning you big meanie Right? Like, we we have these weird arguments on our way to church. Isn't that strange? It's because it's a spiritual reality. It's a spiritual battle. If God can distract you and make you not want to hold your wife's hand while you're sitting here in the sanctuary, then He's winning. Right? He wants to cause you to have distance. So, this is the issue. We have this hopeless battle before us. You and I cannot fight this battle on our own. Human means are not able to deal with the human heart. You will never satisfy the issue of the heart. So how do we deal with conflict, not only in our marriage, in our society, but in our lives? Well, we have to have restoration. And what we see here is Abraham is raised up for the task of restoring people and property. Look at verses 13 through 17. So the scene shifts a little bit. We have Lot taken into captivity and he's being dragged off to Iraq and Iran. 13 comes and says, one of the survivors came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now this is interesting. This is the first time the word Hebrew is mentioned. Uh, remember, we had talked a little bit about Abraham's like great-great-grandfather, Eber, where they get the name for Hebrew. But this is the first time we see it being used. Who lived near the oaks belonging to Mamar the Amorite, the brother of Escol and the brother of Anar. They are a covenant with Abram. Abraham, the language here, is not of Abraham living in a city or in a town or in a house. He's still living in a tent. He is still sojourning in the land. His dwelling is not permanent. So he is here, a survivor of the battle runs to him, and tells him about his nephew Lot. Abraham then goes and he gets his bodyguard. Look at verse 14. It says, When Abram heard that his relative had been taken a prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men, born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. Think about that. Abraham has 318 men as a bodyguard. That's probably more than the president. Right? He has a bodyguard that he brings with him. And it's interesting to me that he jumps up. He doesn't sit there and say, you know what? Serves him right. He shouldn't have chosen the better land. Right? No, he doesn't. He jumps up and goes to battle. And, and what is the cause of Abraham's movement? What caused him to move? Was it because Lot was going to pay him back? It's the same thing that happened last week. Radical generosity. On the basis of his relationship, he goes and rescues Lot. He attacks. Verse 15 says, And he and his servants deployed against them by night, defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah to the north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods, and his relative, also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the other people. So think about that. We don't get much information about this battle except for the fact that it was a night raid. Abraham grabbed his his crew and they planned well. They were smart in their attack and they took back Lot and the people that were taken. So God used Abraham, who trusted in the promise, to engage the enemy with courage, even against overwhelming odds. Right, Abraham could have sat back, kicked up his feet and said, you know what, I don't owe Lot anything. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah, that was God's will that they got destroyed, wasn't it? Think about how we do that in our relationships, don't we? We're like, oh, shouldn't have been messing around with that woman. Serves you right. Or shouldn't have made those bad choices. We have zero compassion for other people, don't we? We don't go to their rescue. Yet Abraham jumps up, gets his crew together, puts his life at risk in order to rescue his lot. We see Abraham using all the resources available to him. He takes his the guys that he has. He has 318 guys. What's 318 guys against the enemies of the east? A bigger army but he trusts God enough to move into battle. He uses shrewdness. You know, this is so applicable to spiritual warfare. I don't have time to go into it with you today. But what means and methods are you fighting Satan? How are you fighting against the devil in your relationship? That's the the question. Are you using the means available to you? Is the word of God sitting on your nightstand getting dusty while you and your fight, are bitter with one another are you calling in close air support are you calling in god when the battle is raging do you say you know what honey i'm so sorry that we're fighting let me pray for you right now that'll stop an argument in its tracks hey you know i love you even though i just said some mean things can i pray for you she's going to be like no don't talk to me right she's going to be mad But do we turn in prayer? Do we use the resources we have available to us? Do you say, I am sorry? That's the most powerful weapon in your toolbox. You know, I got mad at you for squeezing the toothpaste in the middle. I am sorry that I'm such a doofus. I don't know if that's a bad word, but we'll just use that. I'm so sorry that I'm so foolish because I was so self-centered. Obviously, you were not thinking about the toothpaste issue. That was a big priority to me. (laughs) This this never happened. I just want you guys to know. So don't go ask my wife about Toothpaste, okay? I'm just making up this story, okay? But this is a reality we have, right? It's not just about Toothpaste. There's, There's always something more, right? Who took out the dogs? Or who did the dishes last night? Or why are these cups put in the wrong way? right? All the various ways that we get into discussions with our spouse. You know, I think you and I like to put ourselves in abraham's shoes don't we we like to be the hero we're abraham in the story aren't we when you read this do you think of yourself as abraham or do you see yourself as lot i think everyone in this room is lot myself included we are like lot we have made sinful choices made sinful decisions and we have been taken into captivity by our wicked and sinful choices We need a hero to come and rescue us from ourselves. In any spiritual battle, we need to run to Christ, our victor for our our salvation. Not just our eternal salvation, but our temporal salvation, our, our salvation right now. Who do you run to to save you? Is it drugs? Is it alcohol? Is it Gossip Central with the ladies at the bar? Who do you run to? Who do you go to to save you from your? Who's your victor? We need to bank on this family connection. God says that we who are born again are adopted into the family of Christ. Christ is our older brother. He is bound by familiar obligation. Now I, I want to tell you something. My boys do this really well. If you mess around with my oldest, he's kind of nerdy, a little skinny. Uh, Just a little awkward and he gets sometimes gets a little bullied his younger brother though will go to battle for his older brother He will fight and he'll he'll say you know what come with me I'll talk to that person right because they're brothers They're related and we see that with Christ Ephesians 3 6 says the Gentiles are co-heirs members of the same body and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel We have someone who fights the battle for us. In fact, he has won this battle definitively. That's why we celebrate Easter. We don't celebrate Easter because it's a a possibility that some people might somewhere be saved at some time. No, it's because Christ died and won the victory for his church. That's why that hymn, our church's one foundation, is Christ the Lord. Spiritual victory has dangers. Abraham is now in a more dangerous position than when he went into battle. This is what I love about this passage. It's so rich. We could spend all week studying it. They come in the form of blessings and curses. Let's go ahead and look at the blessings and curses that Abraham is is seeing here. Verse 17 begins with Abraham returning from defeating these kings who were with him. The king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shavah Valley, that is, the king's valley. Verse 18, we have this character called Melchizedek, king of Salem, or king of peace, who brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. So after the great victory, we are at great risk. When victory happens, there is a subtle threat. The same thing is here with Abraham. So Abraham is met by two kings. And we're going to look at each one of them. The first king is Sodom in verse 17. The king of Sodom comes out to meet Abraham after the battle. We don't get a, a description of him yet. Just know this king is here. He's hanging out. He's watching. Remember, this is the same king that ran away from the other kings, that lost in battle. And now this upstart, Abraham, shows up with all the people and all the goods. You'd probably be a little... You Salem. So who is this king? Verse 18, his name is Melchizedek. Now we as Christians have heard this before. You've probably heard about it in the Psalms. Who is this king, Melchizedek, this this king of righteousness as his name is translated? And why did he bring him bread and wine? Does that sound familiar to anybody in this room? The king of peace bringing bread and wine? in order to break it and drink it. There's a connection there somewhere. Hebrews talks a lot about it. I'm not going to get into detail because we could go all day. 19 through 20 says that he blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. So This is a Canaanite king. This is not a Jewish king. This is a Canaanite king who is blessing Abraham and said that he is blessed by the most high God the creator of heaven and earth. And blessed by God most high who has handed over your enemies to him to you. And Abraham or Abram gave him a tenth of everything. When you tithe to someone you are giving recognition of their greater position, right? And that's what Abraham has done. He has given a tithe to this priest. I don't want to spend all day talking about this character. I really like how uh, Terry brought out in Psalm 110, how it's a messianic psalm that's recognizing this Messiah, this coming Christ. And if you look at the book of Hebrews, you see the Christ connection to this character, that this, this, this guy, McKizeldeck, comes out of obscurity and then leaves in obscurity. We never hear anything else about him. He's a priest-king who worships God Most High, and Abraham pays him tithe and recognition. He blesses Abraham by God, the one true God, the God that Abraham worships, the same God. And El-Elon is the, the Hebrew word here, the creator of all things, the sovereign God. Now, I want to highlight something. Abraham just had this victory, And now he has a reminder. Where did his victory come from? It didn't come from himself. It didn't come from his 318 dudes that were fighting with him. It came from God. God Most High. So he has this reminder because he's about to enter into this very subtle attack. This is a very subtle spiritual attack. The king of Sodom. Look at verse 21. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. In Hebrew, it's more like, give people, take possession. He's very short with him, very brusque. Does the king of Sodom bring out any bread and wine and refresh Abraham after his hard-earned victory? No, he's very harsh here. He says, give me The people, you take the wealth. The king of Sodom offered Abraham wealth in exchange for the people. Think about this. If he says, here's your, take all these possessions, and Abraham is successful, who gets the glory? The king of Sodom, right? Because he made Abraham wealthy. This wicked king is now recognized as the one who made Abraham who he is. You ever see that in, uh, in movies where you have the guy who, like, says, I, f- I discovered you. I-, I found you without any talent, and I took you to these talent agencies and trained you up, and I'm your, your director, and I should get all the credit. We, uh, we watched Rookie of the Year the other night. It's about this kid who breaks, breaks his arm, and it gets fused together afterwards, and he can throw this fastball, 100-mile-an-hour fastball. And the Cubs are, are losing like normal. And so they bring him onto the team, and, and he's there, and this uh, few, possible future fa- uh, stepfather is basically his manager. And he like tries to get him signed over to the New York Yankees, which of course, the Cubs fans would be mad about, all these little complicating factors. But the, the, the guy that's his manager felt like he owned this kid because he's the one that was doing the contracts and all that stuff. And we see that is offering to Abraham something, wealth, money. But just a few minutes ago, the king of Salem, the king of peace, reminded him, your victory comes from the Lord. So Abraham is is set up now to decide, will he take the the money from Sodom or not? Well, we see an oath. He, He tells us that he has sworn an oath. Now, when did Abraham have time to swear an oath? I'm not sure. But he says this in verse 22. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord God, most high creator of heaven and earth. Do you see the repetition here? Remember, Hebrew Hebrew writers love repetition. If you see repetition, that means it's important. Who did just talked about the same... God in the same language. Mechizeldeck. So Abraham has not forgotten where his victory comes from. He says, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord God, Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap. He's not going to take a shoelace or a flip-flop from this guy or anything that belongs to you, so you can never say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the servants have eaten, but as for the share of the men who came with me, Anir, Ashcol and Mamar, they can take their share. So his allies came with him in the battle, we find out, because we didn't really see much about them until now. Abraham rejected any wealth that this de- or this uh, king of Sodom provides. I think it's pretty instructive for us. That even though Abraham, through victory, was at risk spiritually. Because he could have been well within his rights to take the money. He could have very very much legally said, I will take this bribe. I will take this, this cash. Abraham rejected any wealth that the king of Sodom offered, even though he could have easily accepted it, because he had a greater motivation. You and I all run that risk. How do we discern what is divine blessing and what is not? How do you know that this is a divine blessing or not? Money shows up in your mailbox. You, uh, you play the lottery and you win. All right. How do you know that's not a curse? Because just getting a bunch of money doesn't mean that you are being blessed by God, it could be a curse. So, how do we know? The, the way that Abraham does it is by asking the question, does this bring ultimate glory to God or me? Who is going to get the credit? Who will bring me out of poverty? Is it God or is it me? Who gets the credit? Riches would make Abraham greater, but would rob God of the glory since the king of Sodom would claim that he made Abraham rich. The conflict is far greater than just the physical. I don't know what you are struggling with right now or struggling against. It could be depression, could be anxiety, could be anger, could be any sin in your life. It could be conflict with your spouse or your children or your parents. My hope for you this morning is that you will see whatever you are battling is more than just physical. It is more than just physical. There is a spiritual element. I don't want to call anyone out, but there are people in this congregation who have physical illnesses. But it's a spiritual battle. Because it's easy to play the victim. To play the woe is me. You might not be in a battle right now. You may have experienced victory over some sin in your life. I don't want you to forget the subtle danger of pride that can creep in and take you unaware. Stand firm in the faith through Christ who brings the victory and rescues us from sin and death. Cling to Christ. Whether you've just won a battle or you've just gotten your rear end beat. Find your hope, your firm foundation in Christ and Christ alone. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, creator of the heavens and the earth, God most high, we worship you. We long to be filled with your word. Lord, we know that you are the one that gives the victory. Lord, if we're, if there's anyone in this room that is fighting a battle and not having victory, God, I pray that you will reveal to them where they are fighting wrongly. Are they trusting in you and you alone for their salvation? Or are they trusting in their own abilities? Father, I know that's my temptation to trust in and lean in to my own capacity. But Lord, I know that the more I'm conformed to you, the more my capacity to enjoy Christ increases. Lord, I pray for conformity to Christ, that we would be like Jesus, that we would look like Christ in all of our interactions, the way we talk to others, the way we we treat other people. Father, I pray for the marriages in our congregation. I pray that you would strengthen them by your power and by your spirit, that you would remind all of us in the moment that our battle is not against each other, but against the flesh, the world, and Satan. Lord, we know that you are good and you are great. Your word teaches it and we've experienced it. Lord, I I long to see more people taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord, I pray that more people would fear you as Abraham is called to do, as we'll see next week. Father, we thank you for your mercy, your grace. Lord, I just long to to linger in your presence, to stay in the house of the Lord and sing praises to you. God, we thank you for this church. We do not take it for granted that we have a building when other people don't even have a space to worship, or their life is is at threat because they live in a war zone or they live in a country that is illegal to worship you. So, Father, as as believers, we are connected, we are tethered to the martyrs that came before, to the ones that are dying now, and we don't take it for granted. Lord, we ask these things in the beautiful name of Christ, through the power of the Spirit, and all these things God's people said, Amen.